0: And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Go ahead and have a seat, church. And as you do, I wanna pray for us. Lord, you are so good. And we've determined that fact from the morning that we wake up to decide that you are good that we long to be obedient. And we know that you are working in us, Father. We know that you have asked humility of us and obedience so that when you say go, we go. And when you say stop, we stop. And this morning, Lord, we ask that you would pour out your spirit in greater and greater measure upon us that as you speak through scripture, as you speak through song, as you speak through David, as you speak through the slides on the screen, or the sound in our ears, that our hearts would be softened, that we would receive what you have to say in truth and in honesty and humility, that we would allow you through the work of your spirit to soften our hearts so that we can respond, so that we can choose to obey you. Father, I pray that your spirit would weigh so heavy in this room that it would be inescapable, and that through that you would provide transformation. Father, you would provide revival, that you would spark fire in us, that we would cast off the hindrance of sin, and that we would strive and follow hard after you committed, that we want to be part of your kingdom, that we want to be good and faithful servants, knowing that it's not something we do, but the obedience is what we long for. We long to hear your voice. We long to know you more and to follow you. It's my prayer that whether we're here in the room, whether we're online, in our homes, with one another or alone, that your spirit would speak to us. And Father, not just us, we long to see the community around us transformed. Father, as we are a church that, that wants to make as many disciples as possible in this area, To stay on mission, I pray that you would move your spirit there, too. That you would weigh heavy in this area. Lord, I know there's brokenness. I know there's hurt. I know there is joy. But I know there are places where people are not following you. I ask that you would use us, Lord. That you would use the other churches in the area. And that your name would be proclaimed in glory here. Lord, I think specifically of Mount Calvary in Midland. And they've seen a spike in COVID cases, Lord. And I love that they have used it to draw glory to your name, that it has brought people to the kingdom. And that's that spirit that we want to catch. Well, regardless of our circumstances, we're seeking to follow you. And so, Lord, I pay for Roger, who is their pastor there, for all the people in that body, that you would continue to use that situation, that you would give them the ability and the means and the courage to be faithful servants and stewards of of their circumstances so that your name can continue to be praised. We thank you, Lord. Amen.
1: It's good to see everyone this morning. We've got to get our mascot back up here. I think Sean's got our football. You got it from there? All right. Excellent. So it's actually great because um, first weekend in October, sort of the beginning or the middle, I guess, we're starting out with football season. So pretty much any day of the week, when you flip on the TV, you're gonna find a football game. So even if you don't carry this ball with you during the week, you can still be reminded about those fundamentals. So this is also a great time of year for you to think about inviting someone to come to 4 Mile Church because we're learning about the fundamentals directly from Jesus Himself. And as He's describing this to us, He's literally turning our world upside down. And hopefully each week, as you spend time kind of walking through your daily, worldly tasks, that you continue to see yourself a little bit further and further different from the world. And that's why we say each week that the things that the world prizes, God despises. And the things that God prizes, the world despises. And so as we feel more and more out of place, it's okay, right? Because we're not made for this world. God is shaping us for his kingdom. So last week, we started out with this mini-series. It's about six weeks where we're going to study those six items you see up there. And Jesus uses these six examples to explain to us what he means when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot get into the kingdom of God. And so he's talking about that narrow path up there and why so few travel down it into the kingdom. And he's specifically referencing the scribes and Pharisees who had the task of teaching the law, and they were all about the letter of the law. And we started to peek into what that looked like last week. And it's not much different than we are. We like the letter of the law, too. We like to be told the things that we're supposed to be doing. And as long as we do those things, we're good. But Jesus has taken this to another level because he's basically saying, I am interested in your external actions, but I'm also equally as interested in the internal intentions that reside inside of each and every one of us. So last week as we focused on this issue of murder, Jesus said, yeah, murder's bad, external action of murder bad, but so is the anger that resides underneath that murder. So we challenged everybody to put some snowballs down this week. How's that going? Do we have a little bit better week, I hope? I've noticed I had fewer balls chucked at me, so maybe that was an effective sermon, I don't know. Um, But in any case, hopefully you're working through that, you're coming to terms, you're settling the matter. And, um, of course, as Judy read for us this morning, we're going to talk about this issue of adultery and how it's related to lust in our lives. So just like last week, we were all guilty of murder, we're all pretty much guilty of this adultery thing, too. So let's take a moment and just define what we mean by this term adultery and lust. So adultery is... Whenever we hear it in the terms of Scripture, it is unlawful sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not the married person's spouse. Okay? Very straightforward. I know our culture and even some of our national leaders have fuzzed that up over the years, but that's the definition that we see in Scripture. And Leviticus 20 prescribes the death penalty for it, and that's usually by stoning. So if you think about all the different ways you could go Um, Stoning is probably one of the least desirable, so you can see how big of a deal this whole adultery thing is. And then lust is defined as a strong desire most often related to sex, okay? So now that we have a clear definition of adultery and lust, let's use this graphic up here to kind of walk through what Jesus is teaching. So we're going to look at three cases, and you see that white box across the top that's going to have the external action. The white box across the bottom is going to have the internal intent. And the first case is pretty straightforward, right? There is an external action of adultery that results from an internal intention of lust, and that's what happens when we give in to sexual temptation. Now, in this case, Jesus is in violent agreement with the scribes and Pharisees. They all agree that this is bad. We don't want to be in case one. And that's where the scribes and Pharisees stop, because that's the external action. And this is where Jesus takes it to the next level. We move to number two. So in number two, even if there is no external action of adultery, because maybe you want to avoid the penalty, whether that's stoning back in the day or the shame that's associated with it today, but either way, there's still a lustful intention in our hearts. And Jesus doesn't want that so he's saying that is bad too and remember Jesus operates across the entire ecology of us as humans so he's interested in every aspect of our lives lust is one of those private sins just like anger is and it resides in the same space where the Holy Spirit operates in our lives so in Christ's kingdom there's simply no room for those private sins of anger and lust. Now, Jesus is teaching that we need to be like number three up here, where we don't lust after people because we honor the marriage covenant and we see each person as someone who is made in God's image. In other words, it's our greatest desire to honor God. And we do that by resisting the temptation associated with lusting after someone. So how do we do that? Well, last week, when Jesus taught us about anger, he just said, come to terms quickly. That's it, right? We didn't get a whole lot of details. But this week, he gives us some very specific instructions about how we can respond to sexual temptation in our lives. But before we get into that, we have to understand the very basics of a temptation and how it unfolds Throughout our lives. So what is temptation? Well, it is the enticement to sin, but it is not a sin in and of itself. I like to think of it in the context of what I call a sin spiral. So we start out with truth. It's a straight green line up there, and it's basically the straight edge of truth. And you can think of temptation like this. It's like a force that's pushing us away from that straight edge of truth. It seeks to distort those margins in our lives. It's what's sometimes called ethical fading where those edges become blurred. We start doubting, we question, we rationalize things. Is that really the definition of adultery? What's the harm if I check out a little porn from time to time? It's not hurting anybody. We even do it sometimes in the name of Jesus. We'll say, I'm gonna meet with this person who I privately find attractive, but I'm doing it under the auspices that, well, eventually we're gonna talk about Jesus. And each time that we give in to temptation, we find ourselves spinning further and further from that straight edge of truth. And that's why we need to understand how temptation works in our lives and how we can respond appropriately to it. Now, temptations have several distinguishing features. First, it starts with an attraction to something. In this case, another person's looks. There's something appealing about them that catches your eye. Maybe it's their hair. Maybe it's what they're wearing or their eyes. We must always be ever so careful with our looks, especially if you happen to be one of the pretty people. We all know that characteristics matter. There's a special door of opportunity that opens when you're one of the good-looking people. And I know what everyone in here is thinking right now. How would you know? And you're right, I don't know from personal experience. But Tyler tells me it's a tremendous burden. <laughs> so, Attractiveness tends to attract all of the wrong things It's not only a snare to all those around us But it's also and especially a snare to Those of us who happen to be making ourselves attractive in that moment So first there's an attraction second. There's a follow-up After we notice the attractive thing we give it a second thought and maybe even a second look third then our minds they begin to see the attraction as an object of interest and our imagination kicks in and this is where we move from temptation to sin because our imagination begins building unhealthy desires within us and then fourth those desires, that lust, it wants to be satisfied. So we start looking for that occasion where, our satisf- where we can, all those desires can be completely fulfilled and satisfied, either physically or inside of our hearts. So as I describe this to you, we're really not explaining anything more than basic economic marketing theory. So instead of lust to really grasp how this unfolds in our lives, I want to look at something different, completely different. Let's look at the temptation for a pair of boots. You've got a bunch of errands to run. So um, you head into town, and you park on the side of the street, and the first thing on your list is you've got to get to the bank. So you hop out of the car, you're heading down the sidewalk, and you just happen by a shoe store, and this sweet pair of boots just catches your eye. You take two more steps, and you're like, that was a good-looking pair of boots," and then you cut that second look. But you gotta get to the bank before it closes, so you keep moving, and you head to the bank, and you're waiting in line for the teller, and you start thinking to yourself, "Man, those boots would look fabulous with those new skinny jeans I just bought." <laughs> we do your business at the bank, and gotta get stamps next. Or you're heading over to the post office, and on your way over you start thinking to yourself, you know, it's already October. It's going to be winter before we know it. And I remember watching the Weather Channel last week, and I'm pretty sure they said it was going to be a really rough winter this year. Ah, they probably won't have my size. No big deal, right? So you just do your thing at, at, the, at the post office, and then you kind of do the rest of your errands, and you're heading back to your car, and as you're around that corner, there's the shoe store. And you look down, and you're and like, I got 10 minutes before it closes. Um... It won't hurt to try them on, right? They probably won't have my size anyway. Let me just check them out. So you go in there, they happen to have your size, and you got that whole thing going on in the mirror with the boot, and the occasion is right before you and boom, got a new pair of boots, don't you? It's exactly how it goes down, and it's just basic economic theory. That's what those marketers are doing to you every day, trying to get in your head. So we can apply this to really any temptation. First, there's an attraction. Second, you've got a follow-up. And third, the imagination builds the desire, in this case, lust. And then fourth, we look for the occasion to fulfill it. Now as we learn right here from Jesus, the last two steps, three and four, are where the temptation turns into sin. There's nothing wrong with finding something attractive Up there in number one but if it isn't your spouse don't do the follow-up and this is a really key point so even though that second step really isn't the sin but it's only a mere moment after your imagination kicks in that you feed that desire that imagination that lust and that's where you cross the line So that's one of the key points from today. You see, when we feed the desire for lust at the level of our imagination, we take forward the possibility that should the occasion arise, that we may actually do what we have going on in our head and what we're thinking about doing. But either way, Jesus is teaching that those lustful thoughts warrant the same penalty as the act of adultery itself. So this is the one of the most important takeaways from this morning. Don't do that follow-up. So what do you do instead? Well, here's what I do. I just look up. So um, whenever something catches my eye, before I take that second look, I just look up. And when you just look up, it changes your perspective on things. So just like we worked on snowballs last week, this week, work on looking up. Just watch where you're walking. And be careful when you're doing it in the middle of the street. So, So then, how do we respond to the temptation in our lives? And this is where we get the teaching from Jesus on this. It's basically three things. Be principled, be premeditative, and be decisive. So how do we see that in our passage? Well, let's read it again. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body Be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, if you take Jesus' words literally, these are some pretty extreme measures. No doubt, some over the years have allowed their zeal to outpace their wisdom, and they've taken this passage literally by gouging out eyes and lopping off limbs. But you can relax. That's clearly not what Jesus is teaching here. He uses the striking figurative examples throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount to make his point. In fact, if we interpreted this literally, we'd be making the same mistakes that the scribes and Pharisees have been doing, the very thing that Jesus is here to address. Rather, by looking at the Spirit behind this illustration, we can see what Jesus wants us to do. Be principled, be premeditative, and be decisive. Be principled. Do the right thing. We must be totally, unequivocally committed to doing the right thing, pursuing righteousness, pursuing truth in our lives. And that's a challenge for each of us. So if your eye or your hand is causing you to sin or to not do the right thing, then Jesus says, do whatever it takes to do the right thing, even if that means taking extreme measures in your life. And the metaphor Jesus uses is losing an eye or losing a hand. In other words, do the right thing, whatever it takes. Now, note also how in both cases he says the right eye And he says the right hand, which further emphasizes Jesus' point. It's not just any hand or any eye. It's the best one that most of us have. And so I did a little bit of um, looking into some useless trivia. It turns out 90% of the world is right-handed and 67% of the world is right-eye dominant. So clearly um, this is a special emphasis that Jesus is making here. So we are to be principled, committed to doing the right thing, committed to truth, whatever the cost. Second, Jesus says, if you know your eye is going to cause you to sin or not do the right thing, be premeditative. Take it out. Notice he isn't saying that we're supposed to punish our eye if it lusted or looked at something it shouldn't have in the past. No, he is saying this in the preventative case. If your eye causes you sin, get rid of it. So whatever it is that results in lust in your life, avoid it at all costs. In other words, put up hedges. So think about what is a hedge? Well, when you have a hedge between your place and your neighbor's place, you can't see what's going on over there, right? It prevents you from engaging in whatever's going on in your neighbor's yard. So hedges are really important. Let's think about some hedges that you could put forth in your life this week. Maybe your problem is those magazines at the checkout counter. If that's the case, then learn to do that self-checkout counter thing. And I know that's tough. I struggle with it too. Every time I go through it, the light goes off and they come over and they treat me like I'm a village idiot or something because I don't know what I'm doing. But it's still far better to do that. Put that hedge in place if you need to. Maybe it's the cheerleaders at the football game. If that's the case, then go sit in the nosebleed section or don't go to the football game at all. Maybe it's the pornography that you access from your computer when you're alone. Then the hedge you put up is, don't be alone with your computer. Maybe it's the neighbor guy who mows his lawn in a Speedo every Wednesday afternoon on his day off. In that case, you should try to plant those hedges. <laughs> or find something else to do. Maybe that's the day you go do the groceries. But in any case, go through the checkout line. You know the deal. Just put those hedges in place. Literally, plant those hedges everywhere you can in your life. So be premeditative about the things that trip you up with regard to lust. Plant hedges. And third, Jesus teaches that we are to be decisive. He says, tear it out, cut it off, throw it away. He doesn't say, put a patch over your eye or tie your right hand behind your back. No, he decisively says, remove it, meaning you can't put your eye back in once you've taken it out and thrown it away, just like you can't put your hand back on once you've taken it off and thrown it away. Do whatever it takes, even if some smoking hot person And a string bikini plops their towel down right in front of you on the beach. Now, I notice everyone's looking up for that image. I'm not putting that (laughs) image up there. I don't want you to rationalize it by saying, well, I was here first. This is my favorite spot on the beach. No, you need to get your butt up immediately and decisively. Go find a spot where those weirdos with the metal detectors are hanging out. (laughs) I can assure you there will be very little chance for lust at that part of the beach they're actually pretty entertaining though they get so excited when they that thing goes off and it starts beeping and they they'll dig five feet just for a penny sometimes anyway be principled be premeditative and be decisive because Jesus says it's better than burning in hell And he says it twice. So you see how yet again, Jesus refers to hell. It is a real place. Jesus mentions it frequently. Sometimes he calls it a lake of fire. Now, the lake of fire illustration is appropriate because it's consistent with another important teaching point that we find all throughout Scripture. And it helps us understand why lust, adultery and sexual sins are so bad you see sex is a gift from God he designed it to happen with your spouse in the fire pit of marriage And this goes all the way back to Genesis at creation when God institutes the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman where the two become one flesh that's the only place sex is permitted Now, it can burn super hot in the fire pit of marriage as we see in the Song of Songs and other places in Scripture because the pit is able to contain it. Everywhere else that it occurs, prior to marriage or with someone who isn't your spouse, anywhere, not in the fire pit of marriage, it burns out of control like a wildfire, and it destroys absolutely everything. It burns down your house. It wrecks the forest of your life, and it consumes everything around you just like a wildfire. And unfortunately, nearly everyone one of us in here bears the burn marks from the sins of lust and sex in our lives. And when you look up there at that graphic, you have to ask yourself, why would you ever take that second look And that's the question I want us all to think hard about today as we move into our response time. We're going to prepare our hearts for communion. And as we do, let's take a few minutes to be completely honest with ourselves. Let's confess, repent, mourn that sin. Whether it's in the past, whether it's in the present, or whether it's something you know could be coming down your way in the future. Ask God for His help to build those hedges in our lives, so that we can keep ourselves from taking that second glance. And above all, during this response time, accept that forgiveness that Jesus extends to us. It's extremely good news by the work that He did on the cross, the shedding of that blood, all for our sins. Let's enter the time of response.